At the end of the last video, I attempted to clarify Carl Jung's beliefs. Though he has analyzed topics such as religion, astrology, and the supposed prophecies inherent to both, he is not expressing a belief in their validity. What Jung has expressed a belief in is the existence of the unconscious, one that is personal to each of us and one that is collective. Jung believes that the unconscious force is autonomous and is trying to make us conscious of certain patterns inherent to human existence. These patterns include the aforementioned necessity of opposites, the universal human striving towards self-improvement, and more. When Jung analyzes religious and astrological material, he is trying to find those unconsciously produced patterns. He is not saying definitively that these patterns are pointing to some transcendent meaning, he's merely just pointing them out. For this chapter, I will present more of the patterns Jung has observed. On top of this, I will present how these patterns relate back to two key topics we have discussed in previous videos. One, Christ's opposite in Antichrist, and two, Christ's symbolism as a fish. Jung sets the stage for us by citing the Bible, specifically the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation is the last chapter in the Bible. It was written by a man named John on the island of Patmos, who supposedly received a series of prophetic visions from God. These visions detailed what would happen during the apocalypse, when Jesus would come back to earth and the world would end. At the beginning of chapter 8 in Ion, Jung cites a verse from Revelation. Quote, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Already with these verses, we see references to the aforementioned concepts of astrology and the union of opposites. She has the twelve stars at her head, which may represent the twelve signs of the zodiac. She also has the moon at her feet. These two represent a conjunction of opposites analogous to the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which I mentioned in chapter 6. Like with Jesus, who was supposedly born when Jupiter and Saturn aligned, this male child was born with the conjunction of the moon and the twelve stars. In regards to the book of Revelation as a totality, Jung would once again suggest that John's visions, correctly interpreted or not, were a product of the unconscious mind. Whether the contents of Revelation were produced due to a fever, psychedelic drugs, or a legitimately divine force, the contents found their conduit through the unconscious. Jung's evidence for this lies in the archetypal composition of this birth myth. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the structure of the story is very similar to other birth myths, specifically those of other gods. It is similar to the Greek god Zeus procreating with Leto, who birthed Artemis and Apollo. When Zeus's wife Hera uncovered Zeus's infidelity, she sent a monstrous serpent named Python to kill Leto before she could give birth to her twins. This mirrors the dragon's pursuit of the woman of the apocalypse and the man-child. These similarities continue in Greek mythology with the goddess Aphrodite and her son Eros. When the monstrous serpent Typhon threatened the Olympian gods, Aphrodite and Eros had to escape. 
In respect to Egyptian mythology, the mother god Isis was forced to protect her son Horus from his hostile brother Set, who sought the throne of Egypt. There's also a Jewish legend detailing the birth of a messiah that shares many similarities to the Revelation myth. Quote, Elias found in Bethlehem a young woman sitting before her door with a newborn child lying on the ground beside her, flecked with blood. She explained that her son had been born at an evil hour, just when the temple was destroyed. Elias admonished her to look after the child. When he came back again five weeks later, he asked about her son. He neither walks, nor sees, nor speaks, nor hears, but lies there like a stone, said the woman. Suddenly, a wind blew from the four corners of the earth bore the child away, and plunged him into the sea. Elias lamented that it was now all up with the salvation of Israel, but a voice said to him, It is not so. He will remain in the great sea for four hundred years, and eighty years in the rising smoke of the children of Korah, eighty years under the gates of Rome, and the rest of the time he will wander around in the great cities until the end of the days comes. Finally, the birth myth of Revelation, of course, reflects the birth of Jesus Christ, who had to be carried away to Egypt after his life was threatened by King Herod. Now, what do all of these birth myths share in common? 1. A divine child is born to a woman of divine distinction. 2. That child's life is threatened. And 3. The child's life is protected by either the mother or is swept away by a divine force. To those who aren't familiar with Jungian concepts, they might ask why these similarities are there. One might argue that these cultures subtly influenced each other, and that's an argument we should all be willing to hear. However, Jung believes that these stories are similar because they follow an archetypal pattern, a pattern inherent to the unconscious. In other words, these three elements are part of what makes a good birth myth. The writers of these stories and myths are prompted by the forces of the unconscious to write these stories this way because they are most effective when using these elements. To those who disagree with this notion, I ask that you look at the structure of most action and adventure movies. They tend to follow an archetypal pattern known as the hero's journey, a story template originally authored by Joseph Campbell, who was heavily inspired by Carl Jung. In the hero's journey, the hero goes about their normal life, then there is an inciting incident that puts that hero on an adventure. That hero goes on to become a better person, defeat the bad guy, save the love interest, and make his community better through his efforts. There are other elements to the hero's journey, but those are the most essential elements of it. Now I ask you to take that template and think about all of your favorite movies. How many of them follow a similar path? The reason why they have that template is because it is archetypal. It is a pattern that people unconsciously identify with. Even though the hero's journey will differ in detail from story to story, the underlying pattern is the same. This is what Jung is trying to illustrate in this chapter with the birth myth. The birth myth, along with the hero's journey, are both archetypes of the collective unconscious. With all of this being said, we have yet to relay it back to the title of this chapter. There is yet to be a mention of Christ's symbolism in the fish or Christ's opposite and antichrist, all of which were promised at the beginning of this video. All of these details are present in the aforementioned stories. 
Let us begin with Jung's commentary on the nature of the Messiah in the Jewish and Christian stories. Jung notes that in the Revelation myth, along with several other messianic prophecies in the Bible, there are different depictions of the Messiah, one who is meek and humble, and another that is demonic and conquering. In Revelation 5, there is a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. This lamb is supposed to be analogous to Christ, who was often symbolized by a lamb, a ram, or a shepherd. From an astrological point of view, this is pretty appropriate. Because at the time of Christ's birth, the Ion of Ares, symbolized by a ram, was expiring. This lamb of the apocalypse is a bellicose lamb, a conqueror. The mighty ones of the earth will have to hide from his wrath. This lamb is just about everything that Jesus appears not to be. It is reminiscent of the Messiah promised in Psalm 2. Quote, Ask and I will give you the nations for your heritage, the ends of the earth for your domain. With iron scepter you will break them, shatter them like potter's ware. This form of Jesus is a stark contrast to the suffering Messiah presented in the Gospels, the one prophesied in Isaiah 52 as a man punished by God. So, what do we make of these dual depictions of Jesus? To Jung, the repetition of the birth of the Messiah from the Gospels to Revelation indicate the birth of the Messiah's light side and the Messiah's dark side. Jung speculated that at the end of time, this dark side will unite with the light side, and thus bring forth the totality of the Jungian self, the union of opposites. Granted, this is just Jung's speculation, but his speculation will be backed up further in the next video. These two sides of the Messiah are often overlooked by Christian circles because it threatens their conception of the God image, the Jungian self. This goes back to what we discussed in chapter 5 with the Christian Pervadio Boni doctrine, where Jesus is supposedly exclusively good, and nothing bad or evil emanates from him. They are trying to protect Jesus' conception as purely good because anything that challenges that would, in turn, challenge their faith. In order to do this, they try to cast his dark elements onto something else, hence the demonic lamb of the apocalypse. This extends to the Christian conception of God as well. In Jung's eyes, he too has a dark side. Once again, this topic will be discussed in depth in the next video. However, I will lead into that topic by finally addressing the symbol of the fish. The symbolization of gods with fish extends cross-culturally. It is also a product of the unconscious. For example, the first avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu was a fish, who saved the first man, Manu. The aforementioned Aphrodite and Eros, when threatened by Typhon, transformed themselves into fish to hide their identity. The aforementioned Jewish prophecy of the Messiah being wafted into the sea is also suggestive of fish. These are just a few of the examples Jung cites, and a few in the totality of world religions. The final example of fish symbolism that I would like to cite from Jung is his citing of the Book of Tobit. The Book of Tobit is not a book you will find in Protestant or Jewish Bibles, but in Catholic Bibles which take their contents from the Greek Old Testament. The following summation of the Book of Tobit is taken from Edinger's Ion Lectures. The book features the titular man, Tobit, a man who is old, blind, and praying for death. One day, Tobit asks his son Tobias to go to a city named Medea 
to fetch his deposit of silver. Tobias sets out to Medea with a fellow traveler named Raphael. On the first night of their journey, they camped out by the Tigris River, or is it Tigris? I can't remember. All of a sudden, a great fish leapt out and attempted to swallow Tobias's foot. Raphael told Tobias to catch the fish and extract its gall. After retrieving the silver and returning to his father, Raphael instructed Tobias to apply the gall to Tobit's eyes. Upon doing this, the father's sight was restored. When this happened, Raphael revealed himself as an angel and flew away. Young cites this story because it represents all of Ion's key teachings up until this point. Like Jesus, who is a symbol of the Jungian self via the union of opposites, and is also symbolized as a fish, the fish in this story both has a light side and a dark side. It threatens Tobias, but it also contains the cure for his father's blindness. It is simultaneously good and evil just like the Jungian self. The story is also symbolic of Jung's theory of the shadow. Tobias confronts the threatening fish, which is analogous to the unknown threatening shadow, and then takes its curative contents, which is of course analogous to integrating the unconscious contents. As we have stated from the beginning of this series, there is an opposite to all things, for without it, there is no dimension. It is an archetype of the unconscious. Even a fish is not exempt from this rule. To use Edinger's words, it is an image of the cold-blooded, undifferentiated, primordial infantile psyche, the original concupiscence. The other side of its meaning, in its identification with Christ and the whole ion, is as a symbol of the self. If the God image, the Jungian self, is a union of opposites, and these opposites are latent in fish, one might be motivated by unconscious forces to symbolize that god with fish. One thing that Jung left out of this chapter was how the highest god, the father of Jesus in Christian tradition and Yahweh in Jewish tradition, may also be symbolized by fish. If Jesus has his necessary dark side, symbolized by the Antichrist fish in the Ion of Pisces, what about the nature of God? Jung theorized that God too has his second fish, his dark side. This fish is mentioned throughout the apocalyptic writings of Jewish tradition and briefly in the biblical story of Job. That fish has a name. It is a monstrous fish that resides in the deep and will only reveal itself at the end of the world. That fish is Leviathan. Thank you very much for watching. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share. Also, if you like the work I'm doing here and want to support me, please consider donating to my Subscribestar campaign. Depending on how much you donate, you will gain a certain number of rewards, including movie night, access to my gamer tags, and more. Finally, if you want more discussions surrounding Ion, make sure to subscribe to Uberboyo and Jimmy Boyo. They provide a lot more insight into these concepts and find a way to make the subject less terrifying and much more fun. Until next time, just remember, stay yellow.